Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. We're actually going to be in Nehemiah chapter 3, but I like Virginia, so I didn't have her read Nehemiah chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, turn there and you'll see what I mean. Uh, it is a list of names. And the reason why I had her read 2 Timothy 3.16 is because it says all Scripture is profitable for teaching. And uh, you think, okay, Psalm 23, profitable for teaching. Uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, profitable for teaching. Nehemiah chapter 3, not profitable for teaching. Uh, in fact, the most famous commentary in like the last hundred years on Nehemiah literally skips chapter 3. Uh, and so I am, I'm going to say, you know what, I know more than this scholar, and I'm going to try to preach Nehemiah chapter 3. And so really I had Nehemiah, I had Nehemiah, I had uh, Virginia read from 2 Timothy, not for you, but for me, to remind myself that this is profitable for teaching. Uh, and the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy that every scripture is there to rebuke and to correct us. And so today that's what we're going to see. Uh, believe it or not, in Nehemiah chapter 3, we see a rebuke and we see a correct that helps us live a godly life. So I'm going to read the entirety of Nehemiah chapter 3 uh, because I'm a professional and I didn't want to make uh, Virginia do that. But before I do a quick programming note, this is likely my last sermon for a little bit. Uh, and I say that because uh, this last week on Tuesday, uh, we went to the doctor for like a normal checkup for the baby. And uh, the doctor came in and Taylor's blood pressure was a little high. And so the doctor said, let's go to the hospital. We might be having the baby, which at that point, my blood pressure was high. I was not expecting that at all. And uh, we went to the hospital. We were there for a few hours. Everything was fine and blood pressure came and down and we were able to go home. But that really awoke me to the fact that this could happen at any moment. And uh, our doctor is two and a half hours away. I do not do well with things like blood and the such. So I do not want to have a baby on the way to Oklahoma City. Uh, so we are going uh, on Monday or Tuesday morning to stay with my parents in Mustang so that we're close to the hospital uh, just in case. Now, uh, if you need something from me, I probably will not answer my phone in a timely fashion. That's why I tell you this. Uh, but I also will tell you that we have great people in our church. We have pastors in training, Rick Hay and Tim Good. They can do anything I can do. Uh, my prayers have no more magical powers than theirs. And so if you need help or you need something, I'd reach out to one of those two guys and they'll get it done for you. And uh, I will be back. Hopefully next time you see me, I will have a baby girl and we will all celebrate together. Yeah, I'm excited. So also along those notes, we'll probably take a couple of weeks away from everybody. Uh, just to kind of treasure things up in our own heart. And I think a lot of the story of Mary in the New Testament, uh, everybody's really excited, obviously, because the Messiah is here. And it says Mary took time to treasure up all these things in her own heart. I've always thought that's such a beautiful verse. Like Mary was still mom. You know, this was Jesus, but she was a mother and she was treasuring it up in her own heart. And uh, I think we're going to have a couple weeks like that. So I just ask that you respect us. I know everybody's going to be super excited to meet little Blakely, and she's going to be probably the most loved baby in Northwest Oklahoma. And uh, we're excited for that, too. But we just want to have a little bit of time to breathe. And uh, i got to change a few diapers, get that under my belt, uh, figure this dad thing out. But with your guys' help, I think I can do it. Now, to the uh, text at hand, Nehemiah chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to pray for us because... We need prayer before we read this. Father God, thank you so much for your word, for all of it. Uh, in First Peter, you tell us that this is how we grow up into our salvation. This is how we mature, uh, through your word. And so God, I pray that you help us crave your Bible, uh, especially these texts in the Bible that are sometimes you know, pointless to us or boring to us. 
God, it is in those things that are hard to understand or we want to read over quickly that often some of the most profound truths are found. And God, we do believe that this is your word. We believe that it was breathed from you. It was inspired by you and it is profitable for us. So God, help us see the profit in it. And God, even if uh, I am unable to preach a good sermon from this text, I pray that as I read it, you would begin working in the lives and the hearts of your people. You would, uh, and your, through your Holy Spirit, you would be the one correcting and rebuking them and showing them the grace that is found in you. God, it is in your name that I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Chapter three, verse one. The high priest Eliashib and his fellow priests began rebuilding the sheep gate. So up to this point, remember, Nehemiah feels called to go back and to rebuild the, the walls of Jerusalem. He stands before the king. The king says, you can go and we'll send the resources for you to do it. Well, they're back and now it's time to begin rebuilding. And we get kind of the credits. I don't know if you remember in the old movies, they used to make you watch the credits before the movie. That's what's happening here. We're seeing all the people and all that they did before the building actually takes place. Uh, it says they dedicated it and installed its doors. After building the wall to the tower of the hundred and the tower of Hananel, they dedicated it. The men of Jericho built next to Elishiev, and next to them, Zakur, son of Emiar, built it. The sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They built it with the beams and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. You know, Nehemiah felt really like he needed to give us all of the details here. I want you to know they used bolts and bars. Verse 4, next to them, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakaziah, made repairs. Beside them, Meshulam, uh, or something like that. Son of Barakai, son of Mechiazilabim, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, son of Banana. That's not what it says, but that's what I thought. Son of Banna made repairs. Beside them, the Teokites made repairs, but their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. Oh, underline that. We'll come back to that one. Verse 6. Joadiah, son of Payash, and Meshulam, son of Besodiah, repaired the old gate. Now it's the new gate. They built it with beams and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Next to them, the repairs were done by Metaliah, the Gibeonite, Jaden, the Merahite, and the men of Gibeon, and Mizpah, who were under the authority of the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River. After him, Uziel, son of Hariah, the goldsmith, made repairs next to him. Hananiah, son of the perfumer, made repairs. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Repapiah, son of Hur, ruler of half of the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Verse 10, are you still with me? After the, I'm not looking, so I don't know if you're asleep, if you've walked out one by one or what. Verse 10, after them, Jedediah, son of Haramuth, made repairs across from his house. Next to him, Hatash, the son of Hasabaniah, something along those lines, made repairs. Malachijah, son of Haran, and Hasab, son of, oh boy, Paeth Moab made repairs to another section, as well as the tower of the ovens. Beside him, Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of half of the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. He and his daughters. Oh, isn't that sweet? He's working with his daughters. I don't know. You've got to find what you can. Verse 13. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zeohan repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and installed its doors, bolts, and bars and repaired 500 yards of the wall to the dung gate. That sounds like a pretty crappy job. Come on, that was funny. Oh, man. All right, verse 14. You've got to work with me. I don't have much material here. Verse 14. Malachijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of beth Hakarem repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. 
Shalon, son of Kol Hoseth, ruler of the district of Mizvah, repaired the fountain gate, its doors, bolts, bars, and bars. He also made repairs to the wall of the pool of Shelah near the king's garden, as far as the stairs that descend from the city of David. We're almost halfway here. Verse 16, after him, Nehemiah, not the Nehemiah we're reading about, and he makes that very clear. It's Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, not me, uh, ruler of the half district of Beth Zur, made repairs up to the point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool in the house of the warriors. Next to him, the Levites made repairs under Raham, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of the half district of Kaliah, made repairs of it for his district. After him, their fellow Levites made repairs under Binui, son of Hinadad, ruler of half the district of Kaliah. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, made repairs to another section opposite the ascent. Ha, huh? that's us, the ascent. You guys see that? That's our verse. Uh, the ascent to the armorary at the angle. After him, Baruch, son of Zabiah, diligently repaired another section from the angle to the door of the house of the high priest, Elishiab. Beside him, Merimuth, son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, made repairs to another section from the door of Elishiab's house to the end of his house. Next to him, the priests from the surrounding area made repairs. After them, Benjamin and Hasub made repairs outside of their own house. Beside them, Azariah, son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. After him, Benui, son of Hinadad, made repairs to another section from the house of Azariah to the angle and the corner. Palal, son of Uzziah, made repairs opposite the angle of the tower that juts out from the king's upper palace by the courtyard of the guard. Beside him, Padiah, son of Parosh. And the temple servants living on Ophel made repairs opposite the water gate toward the east and the tower that juts out. Next to him, the Tekoites made repairs to another section from a point opposite the great tower that juts out as far as the wall of Ophel. We're almost there. The last section here. I am hooked on phonics. Here we go. Verse 28. Each of the priests made repairs above the horse gate, each opposite of his own house. After them, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. And beside him, Shemiah, son of Shekiah, guard of the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shulamiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalapham, made repairs to another section. After them, Meshulam, son of Barakiah, made repairs opposite his room. Next to him, Mechaliah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs to the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate. And as far as the upstairs room on the corner, the goldsmiths and the merchants, last verse, made repairs between the upstairs room on the corner and the sheep gate. Yes. Yeah, clap. You guys clap for Virginia. She read two verses. I'm ready to I'm ready to go home now. Uh, what in the world do we find in this text worthy of anything? Well, actually, there's quite a bit of things that we can see. Two main ideas, and the ideas are actually in tension with one another. Uh, they seem to kind of work against one another. And you might think, well, how can it be this and this? But it is very true in the Christian church. And the very first thing that we see in this text that I want to look at is we need you. And I mean that as an individual. The local church, if we are going to fulfill what God has called us to do, we need each and every individual in the church working. This whole series has been about God and His power. But the cool thing about God is He labors on our behalf through us. God could do things much easier on His own, but He chooses to use us in what He calls us to do. 
Oftentimes in the church, we talk a lot about what you are saved from. When we talk about the gospel, Jesus came, he lived the life you couldn't live, and he died the death you deserve to die. We say, so you're saved from the penalty of sin, and you're saved from the power of sin, and you're saved from the presence of sin. But less often do we talk about what we are saved for. The Bible says we are new creations. So that means we have new passions, new desires, and a new work. And the Bible is very clear in the New Testament that we are saved for a very important calling. And it's actually foreshadowed here in Nehemiah chapter 3. You see, what every scholar will tell you of the Old Testament is Nehemiah chapter 3 is unique in the sense that often in the Old Testament stories, we see one guy, kind of a, a figure of the New Test, of the, the Messiah, doing all of the work. So we think of King David, or we think of Moses, we think of these guys who are doing this work. But what we see here in chapter 3, often what I said more than anything else was next to him, or next to them. And it would say the next family and the next thing. It starts with the priest, but it doesn't end with the priest, does it? We are all working together. And this is actually a very New Testament idea that in Christ Jesus, there are no more priests. There is no more professional clergymen. There are now all of us are the priests. There are no priests because Jesus is the priest. And there's everybody who is the priest. We are all called to do what God has called us to do with our own unique gifts and skills in the local church. This is what we see in First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. It says, but you, talking to us as the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And now that we have received mercy, we have this grand, big calling. And we are all to play our part in the church family. Uh, I actually love that verse where it talks about his daughters working. Uh, because that was very rare for a female to have a part in anything sacred that God was doing. And yet in the New Testament, we find out that all of us, whether you are male or female, Gentile or Greek, you have a part to play in the church. We need you. And uh, this is what it should do for us if we understand this truth is it should give us a sense of purpose. Everybody is chasing purpose. What is my purpose in this life? And the purpose is generally right in front of you. I love how when you see what the work that they're doing, what are they doing? They're doing the thing that's right in front of them, right across the street or literally in their house. And it's so true for us as Christians. Oftentimes I want to do what somebody else is doing. Or I look at what somebody else is doing for the kingdom of God and I think, look how small the thing I am doing is. But the fact of the matter is, is I'm called to do what is right in front of me. When I think about my life and what Blake Farley is called to do, I cannot do it all. I cannot serve kids at the same time I'm serving students. I cannot sing. I mean, I could sing. You guys would not like it. You would leave. I can only do what I can do for the church. So I use my gift of teaching. I use my gift that God has given me. And, and namely, another great thing that I'm supposed to do is to love my family. In fact, God says I'm supposed to do that first. Because if I'm a really good pastor and a really good preacher, and my wife hates me and my kids don't love me, guess what? That takes all of my teaching and all of my good work that I've done, and it wipes it away. I have no respect in your eyes. So I've got to love Taylor. I've got to try to preach good sermons, and I've got to try to lead this church to the best of my ability. I can only do those things. If I'm doing those things, guess what that leaves? A lot of things that need to be done. A lot of things that we often don't even think about. And what God would say is if you're struggling for your purpose, look what's right in front of you. What do you have that you can do that needs to be done? And then do it. Like if you notice things that are wrong about the way we do church or things that are in this church that you don't like, uh, you know, me too. I see them as well. I don't need another complainer to tell me what's wrong. It's not like I'm like, oh, I never thought of the problems we have. No, I see them in abundance as you do. What I need is somebody not to complain, but somebody to say, hey, there's a problem. I could clean the church or I could get up there and sing or I could do whatever it is that I think is not right. I could get involved with what is going on. 
Because to be honest with you guys, the church is not a cruise ship. It is a battleship, if we want to use a ship metaphor. <laughs> Uh, I, I love going on cruises. I think they're a lot of fun. I don't like staying on cruises. You know, when the cruise is over, I want to come home because I get fat. You know, sugar kind of overwhelms my system. And I'm like, I, gotta, I want to get back home. There's not really purpose on a cruise ship. There's joy for a while, but there's not purpose. And on a cruise ship, you are taken care of. There are people there who are very nice, very supportive of you. They will even, when they make your bed, make a cute little stuffed animal and put it there. On, or stuffed. And it's not stuffed. It's made out of a towel. It's amazing how they do it. Thank you, Royce. Uh, I knew I was going to get corrected. They put an animal there on your bed. It's so cool. It's awesome. And, uh, and, and you know, you have a good time. You are served. Somebody does everything for you. That's how some of us view the church. You know, Pastor Blake, you're supposed to make the church the way I want it to be. I think they should sing the songs I want them to sing. You should preach sermons the way I want you to preach them. And that would be not Nehemiah chapter 3, buddy. Okay, stick to the ones that we all like. Stick to the ones I put on my coffee mug. You are determining what you want from the church. When in reality, the Bible would say, this is not for you. This is for God. We serve Him. We are on a battleship, not a cruise ship, working for the mission of God. Can you imagine if you got on one of our Navy ships of the United States government and in the beds of the salmon there was a little stuffed animal? I'd be like, something is wrong here. You guys are not supposed to be having luxuries. You're fighting a war. Nobody just gets to sit on the ship and do nothing. No, if you're on the ship, it's because you have some sort of purpose, something you are doing for the kingdom of the United States government. And what I want to say is there's a kingdom that is far greater than the United States government. And there's a calling for you far greater than any kind of calling of this world. And that is the calling of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Amen. And we all have a part to play. And we should do that part diligently. We should do it with diligence. So that, number one, is the, the first truth, the teaching that we see here. And that is, is that we need you. We need you. Now, number two, like I said, sometimes these sound like they uh, are in contrast with one another. But number two is, we don't need you. <laughs> <laughs> number one was, we need you. Number two is, we don't need you. There's this very interesting part in this text. I told you to underline it when we came to it. Uh, Nehemiah 3, verses 3 through 5. I'm going to read them again because they're that important. It says, the sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They built it with beams and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Next to them, Merimuth, son of Uriah, son of Hezekiah, made repairs. Beside them, Meshuliah, son of Barak, son of Meshulam, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, son of Bana, made repairs. See, they're all working. They're all doing what they're supposed to do. But then we see verse 5. Beside them, the Teokites made repairs. But their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. These are the nobles. They're supposed to be the top of society. These are the smartest and the richest among us. And they're not working at all in God's grand plan. But friends, let me tell you something. If you think because you have money or you have smarts, you are more important to the mission of God than somebody else, you're not. I'm sorry to burst your little bubble, but sometimes having money and having smarts keeps us from working in the kingdom of God. Let's not be confused that the kingdom of God does not rely on Blake Farley. This church does not rely on me as much as I might think it does in my pride and my arrogance at times. If, if I am no longer here, guess what? God's not going to go, oh man, without Blake, what are we going to do in Northwest Oklahoma? No, God's going to be fine. You might think, well, if I stop giving to the church, you know, I could use that against them or something. Or if I stop coming with all my wisdom and my power, then you know, the church would collapse. And I would just say to you, maybe you need to take a little humble pill. Because we don't need you as much as we think, as much as you think we need you. As much as I think the church needs me. Now we find out something very interesting about the nobles and why they did not help. And I think this is so important. This is actually a rebuke that we see in the text. And, and I want you to know that if I'm stepping on your toes, it's because the text stepped on my toes first this week. 
And honestly, if this is something that makes you mad, you might be the kind of person who needs to be made mad by this. Because here's what we find out in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. We get a little backstory. Why did the nobles not raise their fingers to help? Well, it says, during those days, this is Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 17, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, since he was a son-in-law of Shekiah, son of Ariah, son of Jehoiah, married to the daughter of Meshulam, son of Barak. So why did they not help? Because they had already had an oath with the enemy. They had already made a promise to somebody else. So they could not fulfill what God had called them to do. And not only that, they had married into something that was anti-God, which is why it's so important if you're not married yet, you ought to make sure that you have the same kind of vision and values about serving God. Because it is very hard to serve God with somebody who does not want to serve God. It is very hard to raise godly children with somebody who does not want to raise godly children. But we see here something we can all take uh, for ourselves, and that is we ought to be careful with the promises that we make, with the promises we make. Because oftentimes when we are filling our calendar, and Americans are notorious for always being busy, we often don't think of the fact that if we're saying yes to something, it means we're saying no to something else. By putting something on my calendar, it means I cannot put something else on my calendar. And oftentimes I sign up for things kind of glibly or without thinking about it. And then when God calls me to do something, I can no longer do it because my calendar is already full. Uh, We can think of this through several different categories. I I thought of one, and that would be like with our time and especially with children. Uh, There are more activities for children to do than you can even imagine. And I'm not saying your children should not be in activities. But what can happen is you begin to run all around doing all of these things for your children, and you have no time to do anything else. There are no time for family devotions because we've got dance on Monday. We've got chess club on Tuesday. We've got band on Wednesday. We've got soccer on Thursday. We've got, you know, moon gazing on Friday. The kids are in every single program of the school. And we think that we're raising them well because we're just keeping them busy. When in fact, we might be missing out on the most important thing that there is, which is what we saw with the man working with his daughters. I don't think there's anything more spiritual or, or more growing for your children than to see your children worshiping with you. And I don't just mean singing. I mean, to see your children, for your children to see you serving God is so powerful in their lives. But if we say yes to all of these other things, all these other activities, the world will gladly say, yes, we will have your kids and your money and your time. And you leave the local church as, well, if we have time, there's nothing else left to do on Sunday, I guess we'll go. And I just want to say, I think this text would maybe rebuke us on that. And if that didn't offend you enough, uh, I think this also applies to our money. Uh, How many of us would love to give more to the kingdom of God? You know, I talk about the heater. How cool would it be if you had enough money to say, here's a $19,000 check. I am going to give money towards the kingdom of God. Then that'd be awesome. I wish I could do that. I wish I had a bank account full of all of the money I've wasted. How many of you have ever wasted money? Wouldn't it be so cool if you got all of that back? I mean, Jeff Bezos would be poor because Amazon would go out of business if we all got that money back. And wouldn't it be cool if you had this one, only one thing you could do with the money and that was to give it away. I think it'd be so fun to write huge checks, giving it away and blessing other people. And a lot of us, we can't do that because we have no margin in our life. We make oaths to the Ford Motor Company. We buy a car that we cannot afford to impress people we do not like, as Andy Stanley would say. We live in a house two sizes too big so that our friends think we're cool or so that we feel good about it. And because of that, we live paycheck to paycheck and we couldn't give more even if we wanted to give more. See, friends, do not be like the nobles making oaths and promises that you cannot keep later when God asks you to make an oath or a promise. Because do not think that we need you. We do not need you. God wants you to be a part of it because it blesses you, but God does not need you to be a part of this. 
verse 19 is very interesting, uh, keeping in chapter 6. It says, these nobles kept mentioning Tobiah. He's the bad guy, boo Tobiah. Kept mentioning Tobiah's good deeds to me. And they reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Isn't it interesting how when we make these oaths to other people, we then seek to justify them? <laughs> we begin to say, well, Blake, you know, it's really good that I have this car. It's really good that my kids are a part of all this program. And we make all these self-justifying claims about why they are more important than what the church is doing. Or, or more important than what God would have us to do even out in the world. I always find that really interesting because I do it myself. You know, I, I felt like uh, my family needed more money. And this week as I was studying this text... I was really convicted because I started a mowing company. You know what that means? I spend a lot of time mowing that I could be with my family or I could be reading the Bible or studying scripture. And there's been a lot of times where I wanted to do something for a sin, but instead I was already mowing. And I began to justify that to myself. And isn't it interesting how we all do that? We begin to justify why what we're doing is more important than what God would maybe have us to do. And what we all need is we need to be humbled as we come into this. Because I had a mentor tell me, uh, when, before we started Ascent, he said, Blake, the people who will complain the most will be the people who give nothing and do nothing in the church. And I thought, you're nuts. You know, the people who do nothing, you know, they're going to be humble. They're going to sit back and not say a word. He's 100% right. Throughout the history of this church, the people who have complained the most about the budget are the people who, when you look up what they give, it's zero dollars. You know, or the people who complain about, hey, the church ought to be doing this or that thing. Or the people who come once every three months and they never serve in kids because they're always too busy. It's so fascinating to me. Because here's what happens when you serve. When you serve, you get two things. And when you give, you get two things. You get empathy because you're actually invested in it. So you realize how hard it actually is. You realize, okay, yeah, these guys look terrible, but they're actually trying. I know we're all giving it our best and, and it's not working, but we're in here working. So you get empathy. And you also, you're too busy to complain. You know, the people and kids right now cannot complain about my sermon. You know why? Because they're not hearing it. <laughs> they're working for the glory of God right now. That's, you think the real work of God's going on right here? Uh-uh. It's going on in these little Sunday school rooms where these, these leaders are trying not to kill these beautiful little children. Because <laughs> when you're actually in the mission of God, you don't have time to complain about these things. Uh, I, I often think of this thing that I heard. I don't know if it's true. Uh, I always try to give that disclaimer. I heard another pastor use this illustration uh, about a, a newspaper article he read. And the reason why I say I don't know if it's true is because I've searched everywhere for the newspaper article. And I don't think it exists. But uh, it's a, it was about a, a dog racing thing that happened. Greyhound dog racing, which I always think would be cool to watch. But uh, I guess what they do purportedly to get the greyhounds to run is they take a little metal fake rabbit and they send that rabbit on a track around. So the dogs are chasing after the rabbit as hard and as fast as they can. And that's how they actually get the dogs to race in a line. Well, evidently, this one time in Florida, uh, the mechanical rabbit failed. It stopped working. And the lead greyhound dog bit into the, the mechanical rabbit so hard that the metal pieces went everywhere, flying all around. And uh, it turns out all the dogs realized they were duped in that moment. <laughs> And so they, it really became super disorienting for the dogs. In fact, the dogs never raced again because they realized the whole time what they had been chasing was completely and totally fake. And uh, it says that the dogs stopped and they, some of them started barking at the people in the stands. Other dogs began to set down in a state of depression. And other dogs began to just throw themselves into the railing and hurting themselves. And uh, this pastor said, that's just like us. When we're not chasing the purpose God has for us, we begin to bark at people who have nothing to do with our lives. We begin to sit down depressed, wondering where our purpose is, and we begin to destroy ourselves and destroy others. I thought, wow, 
That is such a good picture. Now, if it's true, I don't know. But it's such a good picture of what happens when we're chasing after the things of this world. Because if you end up catching them, like your kid actually turns out to be a star athlete or you, know, you end up getting the house of your dreams, whatever it is that you're chasing, what you find out is that it's not all that it's cracked up to be. Guess what? When you go to bed at night, there's still this gnawing inside of you that you're not enough. There's still this joy that seems to kind of be lacking. Because it's only when we chase after what God wants that we find what is fulfilling and what is real. See, what we need is we need to humble ourselves before God and realize that He doesn't need us, but He wants us. Heard a story about uh, Don Shula. He is a coach for the Miami Dolphins uh, during like their heyday. Uh, and he talks about how crazy his fame was, like the highlight uh, of the, the Miami Dolphins. You know, they went on an undefeated spree, and he was on top of the world, especially in Florida. He couldn't go anywhere without people wanting an autograph or shaking his hand or anything like that. And he began to get really tired of it. Well, one off season, they went to visit family in like Ohio or Montana. I don't know, some state where there's not very many people. Uh, could have came to Oklahoma. And the whole goal was to try to get away from people. And maybe, you know, that far away from Florida, he wouldn't be as big of a, a famous guy. Well, on one night, him and his wife went out to a movie. And uh, they came in a little bit late because they wanted to avoid autographs or pictures or anything like that. So they bought the ticket and they go into the movie theater. He's thinking, surely nobody will know me here. Well, as they walk into the movie theater, the lights are down a little bit. He comes around the corner and everybody erupts in applause as Don Shula and his wife walk into the movie theater. And he says, you know, hey, how's it going? I'm, I'm pleased to be here. You know, does the, the nice thing. And he sits down. And as he sits down, he sits down next to a man. And he says, I got to know, how did you know it was me? I mean, it's really dark in here. How did you know that it was Don Shula? And the guy said, I don't know who you are. We clapped because the movie theater said they needed two more people to start the movie. <laughs> Don Shula wasn't as important as he thought he was. Friends, you're not as important as you think you are. And that's really, really good news. Because if you can humble yourself, you'll find purpose. See, the way the nobles ought to act would, would have been the way that Queen Victoria acted. Now, with Queen Elizabeth's death, uh, there's been a lot of people misquoting uh, and saying that uh, Elizabeth said this, but really it was Queen Victoria. Not that that really matters. But it proves the point of what we all ought to be like. Whether you are rich or poor, whether you are intelligent or non-intelligent, whether you are a noble or just a normal one of us, uh, this is how we all ought to react. It says one of the chaplains of Her Late Majesty Queen Victoria had been preaching on the second coming of the Lord. And afterward, in conversation with the preacher, the queen exclaimed, Oh, how I wish that the Lord would come in my lifetime. Why, asked the chaplain, does your majesty feel this very earnest desire? The queen replied with quivering lips and her whole countenance lightened up by deep emotion. I should so love to lay my crown at his feet. That's the kind of attitude we all ought to have. I lay my calendar at your feet. I lay my money at your feet. Everything I have is for you, God. Everything I have is for you, Jesus, whether I am a noble or a quote-unquote normal person. In the cross, we are all equal. Some of you need to be encouraged that you have purpose. Some of you need to be humbled that God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And there's nothing uniquely special about your gifts and skills. Some of you need to hear today that we need you. And others of you on the other end of the spectrum need to hear that we don't need you. But we want you to be a part of it. Now, I've been speaking, uh, and if Zach, Lacey, if you guys want to go ahead and uh, come up as we come to the conclusion. Uh, I've been speaking of us as individuals. This is true of us as individuals, but it's also true of us as a corporate body, as a local church. Uh, we are needed in northwest Oklahoma. I believe God called us to be here for a specific purpose. We play a part. Now, we can't do everything. I can't save New York City. I have no control over who's elected as the next president. You know, all of these 
big world problems that come sometimes overwhelm me, I need to remember that a sense purpose is not to do all those things. What do we do? We do what's right in front of us and we do it diligently. We can make an impact here on Northwest Oklahoma with the other churches. We don't do it alone. We're not the greatest thing. We're just the latest thing. There are many good churches and we want to partner with them to do all that God would have us do. I think what we do here is very, very important. But we also need to hear, church family, that God doesn't need us as a church. God was working in Northwest Oklahoma long before a sense showed up, and he'll be here long after we leave. He wants to use us, but he doesn't need to use us. We must always remember to keep our mission first and foremost. I think a lot of the European yacht parties, uh, known for their crazy parties that they have. A lot of people go there for vacation. And in these yacht parties, they have a very interesting story, very interesting history, because yacht parties actually started when these uh, people would go out and find lost sailors at sea. Uh, They would risk their life to try to go find people who were lost. And when they found somebody who was lost and they brought them back, what would result is a celebration. A huge party would take place because they found somebody who was once lost. But what happened over time was the people said, you know what, the risking our life part, that's not very fun. But the partying part, that's a lot of fun. So what if instead of going out and finding lost people, we just stayed here and enjoyed ourselves? And friends, that's a lot of what happens to churches. We start with this true, undefiled religion of wanting to love the poor and love the widows and see lost people come to Jesus Christ. But if we're not careful, it turns into hollow worship, hollow religion, where we just come together on Sundays and only care about ourselves and our own comforts. And we forget that God chooses to use us, not because we are good, but because He is good. So friends, as individuals and as a church, let us remember from Nehemiah chapter 3, of all the texts in the Bible, not a text that's ever going to be on a coffee mug in your house. Let us remember that Nehemiah chapter 3 shows us that God does not need us and God does need us. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that you've not just saved us from sin, saving us from the penalty of sin and the power and the presence of sin through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, but you've also saved us to something. You are the God who labors and you labor through us. God, we love you and we ask that you would humble those who need to be humbled and you would uplift those who need to be uplifted through this message. Friends, if you would, eyes closed, head bowed. Take about 20 seconds. Say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Father, I pray that through your spirit, you'd give us the courage to obey all that you've called us to do, that we would do diligently what is set before us. It is in your name that I pray. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing together. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.